Take the guesswork out of your cannabis shopping with the ECS DNA kit by Endocana Health. If you take pride in your canna nerdiness or are just canna curious, this kit empowers you to find more about the best cannabis choices. Right now, you can save 25% off your DNA test at endodna.com using promo code POD25. Your purchase includes the Endo DNA Collection Kit, Endo Decoded Report, personalized cannabinoid and terpene suggestions, and Endo Align products matching in your state. There will also be suggested dosage guidelines and optimum methods for inhalation or usage. Once you know your personal ECS data, you can shop Endo supplements tailored specifically for you. And right now, Endo DNA is celebrating their new patent with a buy one, get one offer on their Afika Soft Gel lineup. And since I know that many of you struggle with sleep, I want to highlight Afika Unwind, created to support health sleep cycles using patented proprietary formulations of hemp-derived CBD, terpenes, and essential oils. If sleep is eluding you, sweet dreams are in your future. Buy one for yourself and get one for a friend at endodna.com. And don't forget promo code POD25 at the checkout for 25% off your DNA test kit. I produced my first podcast in 2008 for Lawyers Weekly. Most people didn't even know what it was. I don't know if we knew how many people listened, but we knew enough to set up the microphone and talk about the legal issues of the day. This is The Cannamom Show, a podcast chronicling the inspiring stories of real women in the emerging cannabis industry. Your host, Joyce Gerber, mom, lawyer, political activist, has been speaking with women from coast to coast and around the world who are leaders in the revolution of cannabis and caregiving, continuing on her mission to lift up the stories of the women creating the cannabis industry by sharing their canna stories with you. So go make yourself a cup of tea or roll yourself a joint, sit back and learn something new about this magical plant on The Cannamom Show with Joyce Gerber. From the Tip O'Neill Studios in North Cambridge, Massachusetts, it's the Canna Mom Show. Now here's your host, Joyce Gerber. I am Joyce Gerber, and welcome back to the Canna Mom Show, where we are talking about caring for and giving voice to women in the emerging cannabis industry, one canna story at a time. So Dave, did you see Tip O'Neill? There was an um, editorial in the Boston Globe this week about my friend Tip O'Neill, about how we don't have politicians like him anymore. Well, I would agree. I didn't see the piece. But he's usually used as the quintessential example of an era gone by of civility and collegiality in politics. I don't know if that was what the article was about. but Exactly. And I did put it on my LinkedIn page, if anyone's curious. I, um, I do follow his son, Tip O'Neill Jr., who posted it originally. But whenever I see a tip thing, I put it out there because we are one country. I just think that we should be nice to each other, which, you know, cannabis could help us. Right, Dave? That's right. And for those listeners that don't know... Joyce abides in the home that used to be home to Tip O'Neill, right? That's why we record in yeah. the Tip O'Neill studios yeah, of North Cambridge. There we go. It's all a circle. Right. I'm sure Tip, you think Tip ever tried pot? I doubt it. Well, uh, we, we presume he liked his booze, but I don't know about pot. Yeah, it's a different era. Okay, so I have a question. I know you are an attorney. We can talk about that later. Mm-hmm. But do you know who Constance Baker Motley is or was? That does not ring a bell with me. Yeah, me neither. Well, among other accomplishments, she was the first black woman to argue at the Supreme Court, and she argued 10 landmark civil rights cases, winning nine, which is pretty extraordinary. Mm-hmm. She, she was also the law clerk to Thurgood Marshall, aiding him in the case, which everyone knows of, Brown versus the Board of Education. Mm-hmm. She was. Constance Baker Motley was the first African-American woman appointed to the federal judiciary she served a United States district judge. She passed in September of 2005, and I didn't even know about her either, Dave. And why do we bring her up today? Because on um, Fresh Air, my favorite other podcast, <laughs> there was a new book where Terry was talking to the um, author. It's called Civil Rights Queen. The author is a Harvard Law professor, Tamiko Brown McGinn. And I have my order on copy for my local library because that's how I like to read my books. I love my local library here in Cambridge. 
So cool. She sounds like a forgotten hero. I mean, she sounds like someone that we should be watching documentaries about. Exactly. So this is the end of Black uh, History Month, I believe, to have we describe it, although the whole world should be a constant. We're all here together. Uh, I just think this is an interesting story that, as a lawyer, I never heard of this. She's a woman, a civil rights, a Black civil rights attorney in that era is really amazing how she even got to that point and that no one knows about her is sort of sad so get out look for it civil rights queen and it's out now as an observer of the legal world for many years in in boston it's it always struck me and i was at lawyers weekly from 1995 to 2010 i was always struck by the fact that the the legal system is still a few steps behind in things like civil rights and equality. And, and what I mean by that is still very few like managing partners of law firms are, are minorities in Boston. When the first, and th- this is going to sound weird, but the first African-American judge on the Massachusetts highest court was a white woman because, <laughs> because she, Margaret Marshall came from mm-hmm. South Africa. So she was technically an African-American and that was just seen as such a slap in the face to the minority community. Eventually, Roderick Island became the first dark-skinned African-American. But the legal system moves slowly, and so it's it's good to hear the story of a pioneer is coming out. I knew you would appreciate it. And we're actually going to learn more about Dave today because oh boy. sometimes, I know, sometimes a guest has a other commitment or something happens. So that's one of these days. Often I talk about me, yet I feel that you all know enough about me. But what about the person behind the voice? So before we begin, I do want to thank Plymouth Armor Group for making today's show possible. And I am going to give another shout out, but the New England Cannabis Conference is just around the corner. And if you have not voted yet for the Cannamom Show, you should. Dave would like to continue saying he produces an award-winning podcast. The voting link will be in our show notes. And of course, it's in my Instagram bio. If you haven't voted yet, make sure you vote. And if you've already voted... Make sure you vote because you can vote <laughs> once. I think. It's a glitch in the system, but we, we will take advantage of it because sure. we know how good we are. That's right. Um, all right. So, Dave, here, mm. I don't have a little intro, but you've all been listening to Dave with me for many years now. The can of man, my can of bro. Can of bro. And he is not, before I came into his world, I'm not sure how much he was involved with the cannabis industry, but he knows a lot about it now. <laughs> and he does know a lot about the legal world, which is also where I come from. So we're going to find out how he got to being a legal eagle, you know, (laughs) to working in the world of podcasting and coming to the cannabis world. So Dave, Mm. um, I know you can just tell everyone you are from Massachusetts. Obviously, we talk about that a lot. And I grew up in the hard scrabble streets of Sharon, Mass, like you, Joyce. (laughs) We were, you know, it was a wild world out there back in the day (laughs) with my brother, my younger brother and the Jewish connection. And (laughs) But you went, so you did go to law school, and I don't know if you practiced. Did you practice before you went to? Kind of, sort of. I, I was employed at a law firm, wonderful law firm, now known as Roberto Israel and Weiner, and was the low guy on the totem pole of a litigation team. So I, I think I got into court once, and I said present, and then I sat down. So I was there for just about a year before a job opened up at Lawyers Weekly that really so- sounded it was more like me. And the Lawyers Weekly, just, just tell everyone what this is, you know, who may not know. Yeah, it, it's Massachusetts Lawyers Weekly, and it is what it sounds like, the paper of record for the legal community in Boston and greater Boston, all of Massachusetts, of course. And at the time, the print industry was still quite robust and healthy in 1995, and so it was an exciting time to be a reporter. Now, we weren't exactly like Woodward and Bernstein chasing down stories because Lawyers Weekly is more sort of stayed and serious and kind of black letter law and stuff. But as the years went on, we got more creative. We did a lot more feature stories. We got to cover the gay marriage case, the Goodridge decision. and the Because people, I know they might think that law is boring and we don't do right in a boring way. Once you learn to write like a lawyer, it's a little hard to undo it. But the truth is all these policies, all these decisions, all these things that are being decided at a very elevated level are coming down to us. So the law moves slowly, like we said. We change slowly because we are supposed to move incrementally. This is sort of an issue with the Supreme Court now. Mm-hmm. <laughs> We're supposed to have precedence. So how did you get, when you went to law school, what did you think you wanted to do with it? Did you think you wanted to incorporate writing? No, not necessarily, although I always had a passion for writing. I mean, wrote for my you know high school paper and then always sort of dabbled in writing 
columns here and there, letters to the editor, wherever I could write. But when the the Lawyers Weekly thing opened up, they were looking for someone who was a lawyer and a writer. And I thought, that sounds like me, because I, I quickly became kind of disenchanted with the, the traditional practice of law. And I, and the thing was, I was at a wonderful firm with really cool people, but the work was so boring. And I just, yeah. and so... And so to be able to have a, a creative outlet was was pretty cool. And so my cover letter to Lawyers Weekly said, help me, I'm a writer trapped inside the body of a lawyer. And I guess I guess they like that. <laughs> I, I think that's probably true of a lot of us. I mean, yeah. again, if you really go through law school and you learn to write like a lawyer, it's like laborious and hard to read, which is why people can never understand what lawyers are telling them because of the specificity of it all. Mm-hmm. And there does need to be some creativity you know, to engage people in the world that you're trying to explain you know, I, I think they try to beat it out of you. But if you're a really, you know, they say people who write good briefs, you mm-hmm. know, these long briefs that the judges have to read. Oh, they're eight. Who, I don't know who actually reads them, but can you imagine? It's 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 hard to make them those briefs come to life because you're you're restricted by what the law is. I mean, the law is a living, breathing thing. And so it's constantly changing. But part of the fun of it was the research, because you would go back and find that a case on point for whatever you were arguing is this like 1947 case that happened in Tennessee and you sort of read the facts of it. But, but when you write your brief, you're not really telling the story of something that, that happened, you know, at a certain moment in time, you're, you're going with whatever the legal holding was in the case. And it's, it's pretty bland. (laughs) I mean, do you remember, I did this like bad lawyer talk, but do you remember like those first years of law school and reading case law, case law after case law. And I didn't understand that civil, I've said this before. I did not understand civil procedure was a process. Why they didn't just teach it to us as a process. I had no idea what was going on for an entire semester. (laughs) It's funny you say that because I was the exact same way. And then I got halfway there when I read this book by some guy named Glennon. I don't know why I remember that, but it just explained it plainly. And then in our study group, we got together and we said, you know what the whole course is? It's just civil procedure just means, does this case belong in this court or not? And you have to ask certain questions. And we made a flow chart. And by the time we did the flow chart, we was like, this is the whole course. And how come they didn't tell us that from the beginning? But they just started doing these, sending these random cases our way. And this is the holding of this case and this case and venue and, and jurisdictional amount and all this confusing stuff. That nobody needs anymore. And I think I was the last generation. I did book research. I was right before LexisNexis. So there was like a weird transition. And you'd actually stand before books and check the resources in the back. And that's a whole different way of understanding language. And they teach you federal law and you practice state law. So I don't know law schools. What are you doing? It's <laughs> Yeah. Shepherdizing. You remember shepherdizing, right? <laughs> I always felt like I was doing it wrong. So you had to go through and find a case that was on point. But then in order to make sure that it was still current law, you had to get this book called Shepherds and see if it had been cited afterwards. And then you had to look at the pocket part, which was this thing that periodically the pocket park. Right. They would put <laughs> they would put this little sort of pamphlet, oversized pamphlet in the back of these books and tuck it in there. And talk about an inefficient system, because then you'd be in the law library and like the pocket part would be missing and you'd be like, well, I'm just going to assume it's still good law and then you might be wrong. And so, yeah, and and this is one area that's certainly improved. I mean, when you go on now to I mean, I haven't been on in a while, but I assume when you go on to Westlaw, you immediately know if it's still good law or not. What gives you more time to bill? All right. (laughs) It, it, It did back then. Yeah. Okay. All right. So you're doing this. Okay. You you went to law school. You decided that traditional lawyering isn't that thing. You're going Lawyers Weekly. You're writing. How long were you working with Lawyers Weekly? I was there for 15 years. I started as a a writer. I wrote a front page story the the first day I was there. It was really boring. It was about, well, I mean, it was about an employment law issue, but, and then worked my way up the ladder and was the publisher for the last eh, about eight years I was there. Is it still, is it, where is it now? How do they yeah, it's still uh, it's uh, smaller, like all yeah. publications, but it's it has survived. Probably in a, in a manner of speaking, probably better than some of the mainstream papers because lawyers are old fashioned and a lot of them still like to get the paper. But you know, we back in the day, I think our circulation was something close to twenty thousand, and people would pass it around. They would share it. So if you had an office with three lawyers, they'd only get one copy. And so when we did the math, we were being read by, you know, 80 to 90% of the lawyers in Massachusetts. So it was, 
it was kind of cool to be it wasn't it wasn't my doing it was there kind of before kind of like that before i got there but but it was cool to be like the the king of the legal world i know i remember i remember being like i know david yeah <laughs> yeah got, he lived down the street all right don't look at him now all right so you're doing this and then did you what were you, were you dabbling in like radio like what what was your interest in audio the audio world i guess yeah I've always loved audio stuff. I was always the guy that knew how to hook up the stereo and make the mixtapes and stuff. I was a DJ in college at WQHS, student-run pen radio, which was fun, but we had maybe a dozen listeners, I think. We we never really knew how many listeners we had. It had a very... Did you play music? What did you do? Yeah, it was it was alternative music, and which I hated because I don't... I think you know me by now. I like, you know, good music, you know, <laughs> like I wanted, I wanted, I wanted to play like, you know, the Beatles and Billy Joel and Phil Collins. And they had this rule. And of course, these are, this is vinyl, all vinyl back then. And just stacks and stacks of records. And like once an hour, you could play anything you wanted. So like once an hour, I'd play a Billy Joel song. Then I had to go back to playing like Susie and the Banshees and like. Really? That is so strange. Yeah, I thought I always thought college radio was more liberal. I thought you got to do whatever you wanted. You like had a show and you did your show. No, well, there was the the college radio and alternative radio became synonymous at at some point along the way. For the philosophy, I guess, was that you don't need a college radio station to play Bruce Springsteen and Madonna and stuff because True. there are already stations in town that do that. So college radio should do something different, and hence the name alternative. But a lot of the music to me sucked. So, you know, <laughs> I had as much fun as I could. But so, and then, you know, when. It's like ERS. Actually, it's kind of back. Do you ever listen to ERS? They have like certain slots. So there's like a kid's show and there's a, like I listen to a musical theater show and they're just DJs. They're just students. So they have to do the show that they get. I oh, assume. The, that's the Emerson station? Yeah. Emerson. Oh, yeah. So I'm, I always wonder, I'm like, the people who got the kids show, do they really want to do that? Is yeah. that. <laughs> yeah, that might, they might have drawn the short straw. That, that might be the freshman, right? Yeah, exactly. Yeah. So yeah, and I I dabbled in radio. My one of my heroes is my aunt Margie Claprood, who is a former politician. She was she won a statewide campaign for lieutenant governor and then lost because she was paired with John Silber. But anyway, after that, she <laughs> she, she, she is a hero. She did look. I remember her coming to my mother's house. She was my mom was a League of Women Voters lady, and she knew your aunt, and she always was impressed at how she. You know, again, you can't be a woman politician and not look good. And she always looked really good and she was smart and she was out there doing the work in a time when it was even harder. Yeah, she was. I'm I'm talking about her because she was my connection to radio or at least sort of gave me a couple at bats in, in radio when she was a morning drive time host for WRKL. She was with Pat Whitley. She was the liberal voice. He was the conservative voice. And by the way, you mentioned how she always looked good. She was the first human being real human being to be featured on the cover of boston magazine it in prior and you know before that they would have like just like a model and it would say like here's what to do for the summer and it's a model holding a beach ball right but she was on the cover and the and the headline said sex sex in politics with with this picture of of my aunt grinning and you know she's a very pretty woman and put together and she was full of energy and so the story, and then you turned into the, in the inside of the, the magazine and the headline said, all, all the boys love Margie, but the girls aren't so sure. And it was about how she used her sex appeal to get ahead in politics. Not, not like necessarily in a bad way. It wasn't all like, it wasn't negative, but it was, she was quite a personality, put it that way. Right. So. There is, I ran for a political office and I would say there was power in the pretty. And if you can use it, use it, man, because every vote counts. And that is just yeah. weirdly sexist and I'm not sure how I feel about that. <laughs> yeah, no, it, it 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 is. It was. It was sort of part of her story. But she she did sort of as you suggest. She turned it on its head and used it to her advantage. Like I remember exactly. her telling me a story. She was t- negotiating, maybe even like in the hallways of the Senate with like uh, I don't know who it was. Would say it was like you know Jim Shannon was a was a state rep there, and he was being very stubborn about something and like kind of stick up his butt. And Marge, Margie says to him, Jim, you need to get laid. Will you get laid? <laughs> so, so she could get away with stuff like that. But so for a while, she was they were the number two most popular station. And she used to have me come on and do a segment called Lawyers, Guns, and Money as the guy from Lawyers Weekly. And so I, so I would give this case and like this is the, you know, 
the case of the flying pizza and like, can a guy go to jail for throwing a pizza at somebody else? So, you know, or in a dispute. And then I, they, Margie and her co-host would guess. And I, so that's how that's I kind of got into it. Yeah. What year was that? What year was that, Dave? It was in the nineties. She, okay. yeah, I think it was 1990. She lost the election. And so from like 91 to, you know, the later nineties, she was on the air and, but I was probably, I was probably there doing those little spots in like 95, 96, 97, that area. That's right. That's a good one. That's like, I, I always, I, I keep dreaming of going on the, you know, with Jim and Marjorie, Boston yeah. radio. They need a cannabis person. I called in, I've been on it twice, just calling in. They should have me on a regular guest. Don't you think? They should. <laughs> they should. Absolutely. I mean, you know, that, that would be a, a good segment because news is always changing in the world of cannabis and a lot of people want to know about it. Yeah. And I keep reaching out to my friend, Maura Healy, who is running for attorney general. There's something in the paper yesterday about um, cannabis being part of the political discussion now at the gubernatorial level. Mm-hmm. So we've come, again, a, we've come a long way since I did not inhale, right? Exactly. All right. So 90s, you're not inhaling, but you are on the radio. And then what happens? <laughs> I, I mean, I, I, I had tried uh, cannabis and, you know, along the way, but that's not what you're asking me about. <laughs> that's not the question. <laughs> yeah. Are you asking me how I got into podcasting or? Yeah. So you're okay. So, so you're doing the radio, but then yeah. I'm, how did you even know what a podcast was? How did you first learn about this world? I, just the way everybody else did, but you know, I read it on the internet, <laughs> but, <laughs> but, it, but it was, uh, I remember I produced my first podcast in 2008 for lawyers weekly and that's early. Yeah, I know. And most people didn't even know what it was. And uh, I don't know if we even knew how many people listened, but we knew enough to like get a microphone and I would bring some of the reporters into my office and we'd set up the microphone and we'd talk about the you know, the legal issues of the day, three things you need to know about these today, lawyers. And we tried to keep it quick, like a 15 minute podcast and post it. Yeah. Uh, where would you post it? On our website. I think that oh, was okay. it. Yeah. I don't, I think that was before Apple podcasts, yeah, it had I, to be. iTunes. Yeah. I, I think it was before podcasts were on iTunes. So anyway, you know, you, but we would have an email alert where you could, you know, which was pretty popular People would get their little dose of news, and one of the things they could do is click and listen to the podcast. And then I got hired to be the host of BU Law School's podcast, which was produced out of a place in Norwood, Mass., called the Legal Talk Network, which I think still exists, but I don't think it's in Mass anymore. And what year was that? Yeah, I don't know. Early. Yeah, 2000, but somewhere between 2000, 2005 or something like oh, that. Oh, wow, that's really early. What was it? Yeah. I didn't even know. No, 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 I'm off, I'm off, I'm off. Uh, two th- probably around... 2010? Two th- yeah, 2009, 2010. 2010, right. yeah, so I mean, it's still very early. All right, so, and what were they, they were just putting them on their websites, like a video, basically? It was, or, all, was, it was the, all audio. They had, audio, okay. Yeah, they, that, the vision of that company was to give lawyers their own little mini radio shows that people could listen to. People used to call it internet radio, you know, it was, that was before, and those, right. those existed before podcasts, but they really were podcasts, you know? So, I mean, I remember my Uncle John used to have a... 80s music internet radio show on some site that I had never heard of, but he took it pretty seriously. And so this is before that was, yeah, yeah, it was before like podcasting kind of got its act together okay. and, you know, eventually iTunes became really the, the clearinghouse. And then people realized, started really how to get po- podcasts, how to listen on your phone and that sort of oh, stuff. Yeah, that's interesting because I actually never thought about the history of podcasts. So I learned about cannabis and podcasting simultaneously. So I guess I didn't question. <laughs> There's a lot of things I've learned in life. Like I'm learning them. I just assumed it's something that everyone knew about before me, but I was kind of in it sort of early, but I didn't know any of this history. So basically it was like kind of like internet radio. Yep. And then we found a place. So when did hosting sites come into being? Yeah, I, I couldn't. I mean, I don't have the history. That's funny. I know. So basically, but, went from like but, just people, people doing it on their internet, and then like basically kind of rolling over into like a, a business that there was actually a platform to distribute them instead of just on the radio station. Hmm. Yeah, it, exactly. I mean, I remember the first podcast I think I had on iTunes was probably, geez, I don't know what year are we trying to. It might have been twenty fifteen or or so, and. I started the Boston podcast, which I still continue to host. But at the time, I just had two friends come in and we would interview somebody with like just one Blue Yeti mic, which I shouldn't say that because some people still do it. But and just put in the middle of the table and we would just talk to people. And we were very proud of it, you know, that hundreds of people were listening to it. Yeah, but even but that was, you know, that was when there was still 
maybe 100,000 podcasts in the universe. And now there are like possibly as many as 2 million, depending upon how you count. So, yeah. Well, I mean, I guess so. What I was, so I listen to radio. Like that's really, I don't watch much TV, but I always have the radio in the background, which are podcasts basically. Yeah. And when I first so got you, in, you were always a talk radio person. Like, like, did you listen to what stations did you listen to? Like, I'm at NPR. I'm at public radio. Even back in the day, like growing up. Yeah. And my, but my brother, so my brother and I have different politics. People don't. <laughs> so he's more of a talk radio kind of guy. And he loved um, Howard Stern. I mean, he loved Howard Stern. Mm-hmm. But I just listen to radios, which are basically podcasts because they're hour shows, especially like on the weekends. If you listen to any of the NPR stations in Boston, GBH or BUR, it's just, you know, it's this American life and the moth radio and uh, how this is built. And those are all basically podcasts. Yeah. Those were the, the godfathers of podcasts. They were the, the first time that people took the time to put together these. Well, well, I shouldn't say that well-produced radio shows have been going back since radio was a thing, but, but, but you could trace the, the history of podcasts certainly back because when people start first started hearing about podcasts and asking each other what podcasts are you listening to inevitably this american life was on everybody's list because it was so well done and it was it was exactly what people saw as the future of podcasting which is storytelling everybody's got a story and if you can tell it in a compelling way now to this day i don't know if anybody does it better than npr but but those were the you know and that, and I, I mean and you trace it back to you talk about npr and talk radio which i don't know who knows how long npr has been around for a, a real long time but talk radio itself didn't even really take off until the the 90s when because i remember you know in the 80s all the top radio stations outside of like w maybe wbz news radio they were all music stations right, right. They, were, they were rock and roll they were you, you like rock or you like pop or you like heavy metal or you like kiss 108 the disco station and then sports radio came along and then more and more talk and so which in most ways is a good thing but now we've got the ultimate leveler in podcasting any fool with a microphone can talk into it and post it, you know. And it's very—it's a powerful. I do say it's a very powerful medium because you're basically there's another person's voice in your head because most people live in earbuds, and that something about the audio is very. I think it's what's affecting our politics really because of this talk radio because you're listening to people's words all day, mm-hmm. and even if people think they aren't being influenced, they are because that's just what's being input, you know. And it used to be music. We were listening to music all the time, which is different than ideas. So I. I, don't know. I think it's a very powerful medium. Audio is very powerful. So back to you. I know it's always about me. Okay. All right. So you're, <laughs> so you're doing this thing. So when did you decide that you want to start producing like for a thing, actually producing other people's podcasts and how did you get the studio set up? I just saw it as a business that even a, a fool like me could get into. I've always had the, the benefit of having jobs that I really enjoyed. You know, I was at lawyers weekly for 15 years. It was really kind of a, a dream job. we created all kinds of new things and new events, new magazines and stuff. But, um, so, but I saw podcasting, I'd never owned my own business before. And it was, I put together the, just the roughest, the simplest of business plans, because the nice thing about podcasting is there is a relatively low entry level. I got, and just, just got together a bunch of friends that would chip in some, what I would call, you know, humble seed money for me to get started. And, I did want to go top of the line in terms of the audio quality. That was one thing I thought was important from the very beginning because, you know, like I said, more than a million podcasts out there, most of them sound like garbage. And and so it, I, I thought I, if I can do distinguish myself, if I, you know, a lot of stuff I learned on the fly because podcasting is a lot about making crap up and it still is. There are still rules being, there are no rules really, right? How long is is the average podcast? Well, you can read some surveys and the average business podcast is, you know, 23 and a half minutes. Well, so what, what's a business podcast? You know, the average long form interview podcast is more like 45 minutes, like like the Cannamom show. But if you feel like it, you can go an hour. If you feel, if you feel like you want to wrap up in 35 minutes, you can. And so- that was so when I started the business, the, the I wanted to distinguish and, and show people that they could come into my studio or remote and let me take care of everything else because it's, it's great. Not, yeah, it's hard. And so I, I mean, that's how I came to you. So I was doing this sort of independently. I was going to a studio where I recorded it. So the sound was good, but I had no editing, no hosting, none of the other features that you really do need if you're going to make this. Um, it, it's 
it's a lot. It's a lot of steps. So it, it's a time money. It's always a time money thing. And that Dave's has the resources. He has a beautiful studio, which I haven't seen in two years. <laughs> it's very clean. It's very clean since there've been fewer people, humans in it over the last couple of years, but people are when, but, trying to come back. In. But, but, so when you first started this, were there people approaching you saying, Hey, Dave, I hear you're doing this. I need help. Or were you more like, Hey, I'm doing this. Do you want to start a podcast? What was the exchange start in the beginning? Did people even know, understand what you were doing? No, a lot of people and some people still like even friends of mine are like, you know, how's your business going? Is, are you get are you pulling in good numbers, you know, selling a lot of ads? And I say, you know, you can make money advertising off of podcasts. I use your show as an example. You you have proud sponsors on the Canamom show with, with, you know, a real dedicated audience. But for a business like mine, I was launching a network. And so that that in a way it's slightly deceiving that I call it the Boston podcast network. The main reason I wanted to do that is because no one else had done that. <laughs> there right. wasn't, there wasn't a Boston podcast network. And so my vision was it, it'll still be sort of a come one, come all community where if you want to show, you can hire us to produce the whole thing. You can hire us to produce parts of it. You can have us, you know, write all your show notes and your, or you can do that yourself if you want, but, but you'll be part of a community, at least in some regard, and even in a virtual way that I'll introduce you to other people who have shows and there'll be ways to learn together. And, but which is true. He does really do this. We do our, we do our monthly meetings and I've met other people. Again, this is a little isolating this world. I I haven't been into the studio, but I've gone on Zoom and Dave has people from all over Massachusetts and I do talk to people all over the country so in the cannabis world, but to meet people very local who are doing what I'm doing and have the same issues and we're learning the same things. And again, I don't, people who aren't in the podcasting world don't really understand. You go to conferences, you know, there's Dave's everywhere all over the country who are doing the work you're doing because this is such a powerful and interesting medium and people are using it as a, I don't know, a traffic builder, I guess, at some point, like the lawyers are using it to bring people on because audio is very accessible. Yeah, you finding that's true? Yeah, absolutely. I mean, the there are a couple of different reasons to start a podcast. The, the best reason is because you really want to. If you really want to create something that you're proud of, because that, like, I know I can help you accomplish whoever you are, that a lot of people come to me and they're just kind of of a certain world, community, passion, what have you. I just launched a, a show called Binge or Cringe, which is uh, – woman named Jamie Joffe, she runs a Facebook group, which I just kind of gravitated towards because it's about TV. It's it's just about what should I watch on TV, but it's a good, it's a well-traveled board. And so if, if I'm ever looking for something to watch on TV, I can just go on that Facebook group. It's highly trapped. There's a lot of back and forth on the show, really great I, on the Facebook group. So she said, can you help me cre- turn it into a podcast? And I said, yeah. So that's an example of a, you take a community and you introduce it into this new, really intimate medium because that's what it is Joyce you know it, it, you know every every week I'm on the line with you and you're you're listening to people tell these heart, heartfelt stories you know sometimes about like genuine struggles they've had and how cannabis has helped maybe or whatever but so there's that and that and and I love working with those people because they're so passionate about what they do there's sort of a different sect of people that want to produce a podcast to uh, market themselves or elevate their personal brand or just kind of sell what they do. And those are, you know, the lawyers and the consultants and the entrepreneurs. And for them, the charge is a little different because they might, they probably aren't looking for advertisers. They're probably just looking to sort of sell themselves, but podcasting is a nice way. And you do this too. I mean, you, you're, you are synonymous with, you are the Canamon, like, like, like to, to, to be known for something you can have a website, you know, if you're, say you're uh, a professional matchmaker, right? And, you know, I had one on my show recently who she calls herself Dr. Love. But anyway, let's, you know, and you want to be synonymous with that. You can have a website, you can have a blog, you know, you can post videos. But when you have a podcast, it's interactive. You someone different on every time. And it's a way to build a community. And, you know, you're going to learn a ton more about a person than their per- people that listen to your podcast, Trish, that I guarantee you, they feel like they know you, you know, and I think you've had this happen. People have come up to you and say, you're the Canamom. And like, the, they act like they know you. And that's, you know, going back to the days of talk radio. And, you know, I used to listen to WBCN in the morning when I was a teenager and I felt like I knew Charles and Tank, yeah. and Bradley J and all the guys. And like, I think uh, I'm friends with Marjorie and Jim. If yeah, I really. saw Jim in the supermarket, I'd just walk right after him and would yeah. be surprised that he didn't remember me. <laughs> Yeah. So talk about a great way to let someone get to know you 
by having conversations, telling stories and and I'm learning more. Like you learn it faster. I mean, for me, this has been a, you know, I, I keep saying I got a degree in podcasting and cannabis simultaneously simply by doing it. Cause originally, seriously, when I heard about podcasting, when I first learned about this and was hired to be an executive producer of someone else's podcast, I remember yeah. my initial, my initial reaction was what you get to pick your <laughs> yeah. own podcast. Like, how would you do that? How would you know yeah. what you wanted to listen to? Who does that? <laughs> right. Right. Yeah. It, it, and it's, you know, there are still tons of people that don't, realize what it's all about and still people that don't understand like what I'm doing, but what, what I'm, what, what I'm doing is not like people bring up, Oh, well, how about that Joe Rogan thing with Spotify? And it's like, yeah, I, I follow that at a distance like anybody else, but Joe Rogan is not the type of people that I'm working with. I'm trying to provide, I'm like building you the most efficient, speedy bicycle for, but you're going to jump on and, and speed away, you know? Yeah. I don't know if that's the best analogy, but like I'm, I'm just, it's podcasting is a vehicle for doing so many different things that, and that, and it's not that you necessarily want to have a, a hit show with millions of listeners. Although Canamom, we do want the Canamom show to have a million listeners one day. Yeah. We're working on that. But, but again, I guess it's a vehicle. That's what I, I keep talking to like the traffic builder, or tra- but it's a vehicle for something else to bring it some, you know, to, I created a brand backwards. Yeah. That's what I, I did it backwards. But I know that once you could do it the other way around, you could have something and use this to elevate your brand. Speaking of which, mm-hmm. I do have to take a break to thank our sponsor. But are you guys enjoying this learning about the Canaver, David Yaz? I bet you didn't know any of this before. Now you feel like you know him much more. So if you see him at the supermarket, you can say hi. <laughs> All right, we'll be back with Dave after thanking our sponsor. Today's show is made possible with the support of our sponsor, Plymouth Armor Group. Plymouth Armor Group is New England's leading cannabis and cash transporter. They are laser-focused on security, compliance, and trust. Plymouth Armor Group is building a professional service organization run by professionals. Their people, their technology, their risk mitigation program, their geographic reach, and their approach to doing business serves as the benchmark in the cannabis industry. Plymouth Armor Group embraces the notion that anything worth doing is worth doing well, so they have invested in the right people, the right technology, and the right risk mitigation programs to create a truly unique and much-needed service offering in our emerging cannabis industry. Plymouth Armor Group is proudly run by a female-led executive team, and their diverse and talented staff bring years of collective experiences in cannabis, security, banking, and transport. If you are a cannabis professional looking for transport solutions, please visit their website at the Plymouth Armor Group. The Cannabis Show to take advantage of the special offering for our listeners. Thank you, Plymouth Armor Group. Okay, we're back with Dave. Let's see, let's see. So we've talked how you've gone from lawyer to podcast guru in Boston. You do have um, your own podcast, which I'm not sure my listeners know. You didn't mention one, but you want to talk about, because you do like the music thing too. The music thing. The yes. music thing. Yeah. <laughs> we have um, my friend Mike Wolf and I are my uh, college buddy. By the way, great great fun to start a podcast with a college friend because it's a great way to, to stay in touch because we have That's to. That's a good idea. Out. Yeah, because it, it's it, it's um just another benefit to it, especially for men. Like I feel like my husband doesn't have enough friends. Men go do stuff together. If you can't go, you know, you've been sort of isolated for a couple of years. Make a podcast together. Yeah, do a podcast. You know, yeah, you could. You know, in fact, you could have you know three or four college buddies. You could connect by Zoom, and you could tell stories. I mean, I I I, I know I'm not answering your question yet, but I <laughs> I did. I got, I got we got 15 more minutes. Keep talking. Okay. Oh, good. We, <laughs> we have uh, we have a show on Pod Six One Seven that is the brainchild of three of my high school classmates. We graduated from Milton Academy in 1986. And the three of these, they all happen to be women. They came to me and they said, we want to start a podcast called The Link. The Link was a particular uh, kind of spot on campus at Milton Academy, but there's a double meaning that it's a link from the the past to the, the present. And so there's a lot of nostalgia about growing up and going to high school in the 80s. But what they did was they tracked down classmates just doing interesting things. Like, you know, the guy works for Netflix and this well, guy. Sure. Your like, class, I mean, that's a Milton Academy class. Like, you must be all, all sorts of things. There there are some impressive people. And just a cool example of, of another way to use a podcast. But we and to stay in touch with my high school friends. So, but the, yeah, the music podcast I have is called Past Tens. We actually paid for some professional jingles. Past 
Fast Tins, a top ten time machine. If you're going to let me plug the show, I'm going to plug the show, Joyce. So I'm not, I, I haven't heard that. Actually, Howard, I'm not, I have not heard that. Sorry. <laughs> Thanks a lot. It has its own website, actually. It's, My son's been on your podcast. That's true. That's true. <laughs> uh, time Machine. No, he's, he was on the Boston podcast. Oh, that, yeah, that's what he was on. Oh, so, yeah, two different shows. But the, the, that's a music nostalgia show. It's a, it's a lot of fun. We go back, we quote unquote, go back in time. This time, time machine sound effect sounds like that. And we, and uh, so we'll land, quote unquote, in 1986, and then we'll go through the top 10, and we'll, and, my buddy Milt, he does all kinds of research and things you would never have known about these songs. And then we'll have guests on. Sometimes we've interviewed like you know lead singers of bands and things like that. So do you that's still play of- vinyl? Do you still play vinyl? No, <laughs> <laughs> there's no vinyl. No, um, I have all my old albums in the basement still. I don't know what to do with them. They're just down there. <laughs> if I, I have, a, I have a bunch as well. I I hang them on my wall sometimes. They do make good art. That's uh, true. When when Josh has his first music studio, we'll just hang them on the wall. <laughs> that's right hang those gold records on the wall as soon as he gets those so yeah for those interested in music nostalgia and just kind of a fun show that's timemachinepod.com is the uh, website and then I have the Boston podcast which I which I kind of use as a vehicle just to get to know anybody I would like to and I sort of offer it up to my whole network of professionals and others and so yes I interviewed your son and his musical partner at the time and, you know, so, but I've had comedians on, I've had, you know, entrepreneurs, business owners. I just interviewed two young men who started uh, their own NFT business, which I talked to them for NFTs. 40 I talked to them for, <laughs> I, I swear, Joyce, I talked to them for like 40 minutes. I'm still not sure exactly what it is, but, but, but it's uh, clearly what's happening now, you know? So I'm so not now. I mean, I listen, I I read the old fashioned newspaper and I listen to show tunes. So yeah, NFTs. I'm like, I don't know. I just well, there's... real estate. I like investing in real estate. <laughs> well, now you can, you can invest in real estate in the metaverse. You've heard this, right? Which is, yes, there are people buying acres, virtual acres of virtual land in the so-called metaverse. Figure that one out. I mean, it's, I to, I, there's an assumption that there's someone in the future who's going to want to buy it back. That's the only reason it would have any value. But well, right. just, I, I don't have that big of an imagination, I suppose. And like these, <laughs> these these kids I was talking to, I mean, they're impressive people, but I call them kids because the older of the two was, I think, 22 years old. But, you know, they have a, a website and you go on and they have a game, it, it you know, a, a video game, essentially. But you can buy one of these little icons like a, a little turtle or a little like duck with sunglasses and that becomes yours and they only sell three of them in the whole world and you can buy one for like 300 bucks and it's yours and then when you go in the video game you're the little duck with the sunglasses on now i'm still not sure why anyone would want to do that when you could go to a different video game and just be you know super mario or whatever but this is a thing it's amazing i think I, I think i mean i don't play video games but i think it's done something to our brains the way you experience the world that's so interesting I don't, yeah. yeah, I mean, to me, it's it's so far. Mm-hmm. It sounds like those people who buy a star. I have a star named after you. Like it's a funny little gimmick, but please don't don't buy a star for more than like you know seven bucks as a as a gag for someone. But who knows? I don't know. Maybe maybe, maybe these kids know more than they, we. Do. They know more than we do. What do we know? Old, but you know enough to start a podcast company. So there yeah. you go. You're jumping yeah. into the future. Are they keeping you young? Like, have you learned anything you didn't? I don't know. <laughs> It, what it is is it's fun, and that's what I tell people. The, the one of the best. And you do have a community. That's the other thing. I mean, I talk about this with cannabis. Like, I found a new community. I mean, you have a podcasting community. We have John Gay, who's been helping yep. us with stuff, and I know that you go to conferences, and there's a whole world of people who are doing this. It's yeah, impressive. and there aren't. I mean, knock on wood, there aren't a ton of people doing exactly what what I'm doing here in Boston. That, in other words, a, a company that you can go to and they produce your podcast for you. By the way, the other misconception people get, and I hate to be sort of bottom line about it is people are like, I got a great idea for a podcast. Here it is. And I say, okay, that sounds great. Like what? And eventually I have to ask how much money do you have budgeted for this? And they say, Oh, I, I didn't think it worked that way. I said, well, I, you know, this is what I do for a living. So I'm not going to sit here and create intro music for you and edit podcast for you just for my own health. You know, it, it's a business, know, people. It's just a yeah, business. It, yeah. But as you know, that, that's like podcasting. You can eventually have a hit show and make a lot of money off of your hit show. But, man, it takes time and patience. And so it's don't... persistence and consistency. You're trying to build authenticity. You're trying to become a voice that people want to listen to. So you have to 
it's like being a mother. You just mm-hmm. have to keep doing it consistently over and over and over again. <laughs> and, and it never ends. And you, and you never know if you're doing a good job. You have no idea. Like, I remember that when the kids are babies. I'm like, how long do I have to keep doing this? Like, how do I know when I'm doing a good job? Like, <laughs> yeah. But eventually you do, Joyce, because you hear things and, and people will email you and comment on your LinkedIn posts and things like that. And so, you know, eventually you do start hearing from your audience and that's when it gets exciting. Yeah. And that, you know, these, again, we're ruled by stories. And these stories are helping people understand their own world. That's really what we're doing this for. And cannabis, I guess we can come back to cannabis because, you know, why not? So, <laughs> cannabis, it's always about cannabis. Mm-hmm. You know, cannabis is, again, it's a vehicle, kind of like podcasting. It's a vehicle for change. That's how I think of it. Health equity change. I talk a lot about it in business in terms of like how these businesses are being built and, you know, having women in leadership and why that would look different and how we can do it differently. But again, cannabis is this new thing we're in. Originally, I thought I'd get into law using cannabis. So was that anything when you were working as a lawyer, were there cannabis, what what was your world understanding of cannabis law? And when you actually started to see cannabis being normalized, were you still involved at all with the legal world? No. Like what was happening? Yeah. No, you know, just as an observer, I'm sure we, we covered that at Lawyers Weekly, but just, just, I was gone from Lawyers Weekly by the time it started becoming, legal and just as a as a watcher of the thing i was fairly amazed by how quickly the 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 law changed and by how quickly the stigma fell off but i wanted to ask you about the stigma because it it fascinates me because still to this day if you know there are people that will come to you and go so are you uh 420 friendly you know and they ask with a little bit of hesitation because there are still people that will look at you as a, as a stoner and even just normal people like you and I that have jobs, you know, and families and things like that. So do you like when, when you're sort of telling somebody for the first time, do you always kind of have that moment of anticipation wondering how they're going to react? And they joke. Yeah. It's like this thing. It's like a joke or are you high now? Or Hmm. I, I talked about this the other day about the view. I was really frustrated because again, this is therapy for people instead of being on, medications, pharmaceuticals, people are using cannabis for medication and they're using it for their health and wellness. And people don't even understand what cannabis does to them, which is what I think is so interesting because they're so afraid of it, or they think that you're going to be acting kind of loopy and weird, or I don't know what they think you're, they don't know what people actually believe you're going to be like when you're consuming cannabis. Mm -hmm. And the truth is, this is something for our bodies that helps us balance so, and again, I feel more normal sometimes when I'm after I've, you know, you know, that anxious feeling you get in your body. That's what yeah. people use it a lot for. And you actually, I remember this before I would go, I used to go to court and I always thought I was going to throw up. Mm-hmm. <laughs> I hated going to court, but that's that anxiety, that overwhelming feeling that, you know, will pass through you, but you have to get through it. Cannabis helps get rid of that. For sure. It, help, yeah. it helps you stay stable and connected to your body, which is, I think, almost the opposite of what people think it's going to be like. Mm-hmm. which is why I present as I do, you know, I play tennis, I wear pearls, I speak the way I do. I, I, I look like a white entitled lady. And I talk about this in a very grown up, mature way. So people can see me. Yep. Which is why, you, why yeah. you're a good ambassador for it. Because, yeah. because you know, the, the, the smart people in the professional world are paying attention to it because if for no other reason, it's big business now and growing. Right. And, and I, and I honestly, I, I, I hate when, I hate when people come into this industry and they, seem almost offended by the idea that they might be consumers and they're only in it for money. That's literally the opposite of how you should be. You have to understand this plant. You have to understand how it works in order to be a steward of it. Yeah. You know? So yeah, I still get it all the time. I, I do what I can. I try yeah. to be educate, yeah. educate mm-hmm. you know, and, and yeah, just try to be me. Yeah. I don't know. I, I, again, I think that people who are actually consuming cannabis are, probably some of the healthiest people you know. Yeah, yeah. I, I know. And they're, they're doctors and they're, you know, they're air, airplane pilots. I'm sorry to break the news to you, but, and a lot Everyone. of them are just, it's just, yeah, it's, it's, you know, it's something that helps them cope, helps them live, maybe helps them relieve pain or for whatever reason they're using it. And that's what I've learned from your show is, is just it, like you, you said it well, it's, it's a tool, it's a vehicle for many different things. And it, and it, you know, you should, come to it with an open mind because of that yeah and, and even like this whole again to come back to the law like we're, we keep trying to legislate against things that might happen and we're creating more problems yep. so we, again there's no other industry in the world that is treated the way cannabis is now 
we are now on a tear to limit the THC content across the states because of people trying to control something that they shouldn't be controlling. And we never do that with alcohol, yeah. ever. We make it so difficult to access cannabis with packaging. We make it difficult to access cannabis because it's not covered. There was a case that's come, it's, they're being, I think the Supreme Court was asking, they were asking for assistance in, a, I think it was a disability case or a, a job, someone, a workers' comp. I think it was a workers' comp case because businesses should be paying, they should be reimbursing that. that that's a medical expense. If you're using cannabis to heal from a, a workers' comp issue, that should be reimbursed by your employer. Mm-hmm. And again, so these are legal things that have to keep, they'll start changing the stigma as well. But as long as we have these crazy ideas about what it is, policymakers are going to be making bad policies, which are going to be laws, which are going to have to be enforced, and it's going to keep the ball rolling. So it's important. I even talk about like district attorney level. I mean, they're enforcing bad laws. Mm-hmm. <laughs> so people like us need to understand what it is and whisper in the ears of the people making policies so that we can have better understanding and not make it so difficult for people to access it. And we will be healthier for it, I believe. That's Agreed. All right. So see what you've learned. So, <laughs> yes. A ton. Thanks for having me on your show, Joyce. This is fun. I know. Usually it's just me talking about me or when we forget yeah. to have a guest or a guest forgets to show up, but this is good. So this is the voice, the man, the man behind the voice. If you want to connect with Dave, you want to do a podcast, you just want to talk to him. How do they reach you, Dave? Pod617.com, Boston Podcast Network and Pod We Trust. Just go to the website. It's got ways to find. You want to email me, David at pod617.com. It'll all be in the show notes. Okay. Thank you for my guest who also happens to be my Canabro, David Yaz, and our Canamom Show team. I want to thank you for taking the time to listen to the Canamom Show, where we are on a mission to enhance the impact women have on the emerging cannabis industry by sharing and preserving their stories of love, kindness, wisdom, and hope. Thank you for following and sharing the inspiring stories of the women building this new industry so together we can cross the stigma around cannabis and caregivers. I'm your host, Joyce Gerber. This is the Cannamom Show, and we are a production of Pod 617, the Boston Podcast Network. Thanks for listening to today's show. To check out more great cannabis podcasts, go to podconnects.com. Here's a preview of one of our other shows. Hi, my name's Kate, and I'm your host of the Pop Moms Podcast. I started the Pop Moms Podcast, well, because I wanted to end the stigma against using cannabis, specifically with moms, but also anyone who chooses to consume. I strive for a balance of humor and education, along with some pretty rad guests, to help combat social biases that come with consuming cannabis. Kids are hard. Join me for regular podcast episodes packed with parenting hacks, real-life stories, and of course, my favorite cannabis products. The days are long, but the years are short. So roll another J and take a deep breath. Keep blazing and stay amazing.